0: This is a download from Newstalk 106 to 108.
1: To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on Talk 106
0: to 108.
1: think you can live without memory. I mean, I say that in the book. I mean, the a character in the book says you can't just leave it behind like an empty field. It'll come back. It'll it'll come back to haunt you. Your, your memory will come after you in a lot of ways. I've said that before. It'll come after you like your name. So it's something that everybody has to deal with. And this is still a kind of a frontier in psychology and human imagination. How we deal with memory. You know, can you kind of just pacify it and, and put it behind you? You know, for instance, my mother had this great trick. We used to have nightmares at, at home uh, as as children. My mother would get us up and give us a piece of paper and some crayons and we draw out the nightmare. So there would be this spiky creature we'd draw and she would say, look, I'll put that in, in my diary and it's be safe there. You don't have to dream about it anymore. It was a, a very sort of modern, contemporary kind of thing to do because that's what we do all the time. We describe something as writers. We describe nightmares. We describe beautiful things. We, we But we have this need to put it on paper. Otherwise, it gets the better of us. That's my theory really about memory is that unless we deal with it, unless we somehow write about it and describe it, it then becomes overwhelming.
2: What is self without memory? And is it possible to live without the past? Hello, it's Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. And today's show comes to you from sunny Bantry in gorgeous West Cork. Yes, we've headed south. We're going to go inwards and outwards, soaking up the cool literary breeze. At this year's West Cork Literary Festival, which I have to say, for lovers of books, fresh air, soda bread and all things arty, well, it was quite the treat. Now, for those of you who missed out on this year's festival, well, the line-up was really quite special and included... The thought-provoking and stylish Argentinian writer Alberto Manguel, award-winning Canadian poet and novelist Anne Michaels, whose unforgettable book, Fugitive Pieces, won both the Orange and Guardian Fiction Prize in 1997, and the courageous Romanian poet and novelist Carmen Bugan, who earlier in the week captivated festival-goers with her passionate and arresting reading from her memoir, *Bearing the Typewriter. Now, this year's festival also featured household names such as Blake Morrison, Jonathan Miller, Alice Taylor, Jennifer Johnson, Ben Ockrey, Paula Meehan and the great Emer McBride. I particularly enjoyed Walking Ireland with Christopher Somerville, the renowned travel writer and walker. It was absolutely inspiring. He's quite a character. Okay, enough creative detours for me. Let's get on with today's show and meet with two stirring voices from this week's West Cork Literary Festival. This is a show about empathy and experience, parenting and psychology, fear, and facing up. But first, what it means to be human. American novelist Karen Jo Fowler talks me through the ideas behind her surprising new book, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. First, let's start off with a taster on how the book reads. Until Fern's expulsion, I'd scarcely known a moment alone. She was my twin, my funhouse mirror, my whirlwind's other half. It's important to note that I was all those things to her. I would say that, like Lowell, I loved her as a sister, but she was the only sister I ever had. So I can't be sure it's an experiment with no control. Still, when I first read Little Women, it seemed to me I'd love Fern as much as Jo loved Amy, if not as much as Jo loved Beth. We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves is a fascinating story of a 1970s midwestern family torn apart by a behavioural experiment. The narrator Rosemary tells her heartbreaking story of her early childhood with her chimp twin sister Fern and the devastating impact of their separation. Now before you dismiss this book as absolutely crackers... To quote the great Mark Twain, Truth is stranger than fiction. We Are All Beside Ourselves is inspired by several real-life psychology experiments in the early 1930s. What's interesting about this read is how the narrator Rosemary challenges the reader to think about the way we understand, empathise and live with animals. And I have to say, it will really take you by surprise. Karen's book is quite a unique reflection into sibling relationships and rivalries, the nature and parameters of love, and all the hairy stuff that goes on in families. Karen made the clever decision to withhold the true identity of the protagonist's sister, Fern, until a third of the way through the book to begin from an assumption of similarity. And it works, heart-stompingly so. That said, it does make for quite a reviewer's nightmare. It's hard to talk about this book without revealing spoilers. So apologies to anyone in advance who's about to shoot me. Karen Joy Fowler believes that scientists spare the responsibility of any suffering they cause and that knowledge alone is not sufficient motivation. She says we shouldn't do things we are unable to look at and that this applies to the way we treat our animals, the way we run our prisons, the way we conduct our wars. Well, Karen flew into Cork late Thursday night for her Friday night's reading at the West Cork Literary Festival. And despite the jet lag and heavy schedule, she managed to find the time to talk with me and Amara Bantry Bay. Let's take a listen.
0: Most specifically, the book is based on an experiment that took place in the United States in the 1930s. A psychologist named Winthrop Kellogg decided that he would try to raise an infant chimpanzee alongside his infant son, try to normalize the upbringing uh, or standardize the upbringing of both of them as much as possible and see what their differences were in terms of capabilities. He was focused, as most of the home-raised chimp experiments, were on language, but also on on other capabilities.
2: And what's interesting there is the mimicking was extraordinary on both sides. Yeah, this apparently was
0: not anticipated. It was, I think, that they were very clear on the fact that the little chimpanzee, whose name was Gua, would pick up human They expected that and actually were hoping for that. But what they did not seem to have thought about at all is the fact that their son, Donald, might pick up chimp behaviors. And this happened as well. And this is why the experiment came to a very kind of abrupt halt, and a very early halt. I think the original plan was probably for the experiment to go on considerably longer than it did, but long before Donald actually acquired language. And it's it's possible that his language was delayed by the experiment. He began food hooting, uh, joyous noise, chimps make when something delicious is put in front of them, and, um, and, and mimicking guà in, in other ways that were unacceptable to the family.
2: And when you think about what was unacceptable, or not the issue was that these children who were taking part because their parents research interests had to also relate to the world outside their house outside the research lab which was schools their social peers and they ended up being very marginalized or isolated in ways because they were seen as different. And they were effectively different because they were collaborating and learning different skills in life and looking at life in different ways.
0: I think this is certainly true uh, in the case of the Kellogg experiment. The Kellogg experiment is the only one that I'm aware of where uh, an infant child was involved in that very formative period. The other experiments which involved chimps being raised in human homes often had children also in the home, but they were older children. They were children who had already established their skill sets as human beings and so they did, of course, have, have different experiences and different, you know, learn different things about the world from having a, a chimpanzee as part of the family, but they were not impacted in the same way that Donald Kellogg was.
2: Now your latest book has looked at the consequences of these experiments on families. Can you tell me about your narrator, Rosemary? She's a very interesting woman. She's very strong in certain ways. She certainly has quite an agenda, but she has had a very troubled past and she's coming to terms with her past.
0: As I said, the sort of initial idea for the book came from the Kellogg experiment, but that experiment ended when Donald Kellogg was, I think, about 16 months old, possibly 19 months. I can never quite remember. So in my fictionalized account, I have replaced Donald Kellogg with Rosemary Cook, and the experiment goes on for five years. I wanted a narrator who would remember some of the experiment, um, and I felt that five years was sort of the outside of what I could hope, as Rosemary is telling the story as an adult woman, what I could hope she might remember. I thought a lot about language when I wrote the book, and I thought a lot about language when I tried to create the character of Rosemary. I thought that... if you were raised with a chimp twin and, and people were constantly assessing your abilities with reference to this chimp twin, that the one thing that you would have clearly in your favor would be language. And so because Rosemary is not as gifted physically as Fern, who is her chimp sister. She has a particular relationship to language. She likes to talk. She likes big words. She um, she talks a lot. She, she talks so much that steps have to be taken to try to stem the flow sometimes. But after the loss of her sister, she becomes very silent. And the book represents her coming back to language and coming back to her own voice and coming back to her own history and trying for the first time to tell the story because among the people who have not wanted to talk about it is very much her.
2: And I'm an identical twin and I was particularly moved by the story but how you present the story is very intriguing because you don't want the reader to judge from the get-go what's going on because then they will feel that maybe the attachments will not be the same or the psychological impact would not be the same but then you develop the different dynamics between the twin sisters and then it becomes quite real and you see the pain. So can you talk to me how you approach that? Because that's not an easy task to do and also you're playing with the reader's imagination and their sense of understanding of the relationship between humans and animals and what they expect in that relationship.
0: I don't think I can put it any better than you have just put it. Um, Yes I always from the very beginning I always knew that I wanted the reader to meet Fern as a sister before they met Fern as a child. I felt this was important for exactly the reasons that you've said, that I think if um, if you know immediately that the sister who has been removed from the family is a chimpanzee, you just read the book very, very differently. I wanted you to spend a certain amount of time reading the book as if she was a sister like any other sister. I think I felt entitled to play with the reader's expectations in that way because it is a first-person narration. And um, as you've also said, Rosemary is very much in control of how she's going to tell the story and has an agenda and is, um, is going to make her points in the way that she finds most persuasive and most useful. And what's
2: interesting about the story is the impact and toll on the family and how siblings reacted very differently. How much did you want to push the reader in terms of their ideas and what's acceptable in terms of psychological experiments science and progress? Was that important to you when writing the book?
0: Absolutely mm-hmm. I think in a broader way just our relationship to the other animals we share the planet with and our relationship to the planet itself are enormously uh, important to me and very, very complicated. I was thinking many, many things uh, uh, along these topics when I wrote the book. One of them is that sort of peculiarity, I think, of the fact that as small children, we are really encouraged to identify with animals. I have six grandsons now, and I would say that maybe 80% of the books I read to them as bedtime stories have animal protagonists and they're not really animals because they're brushing their teeth and kissing their parents goodnight and so Mm -hmm. you know the the child is absolutely being encouraged to see a kinship there Mm -hmm. and and to see the animals as stand-ins for for children And then at a certain point, we just expect children to put that away Mm. as as a childish thing. And so, uh, you know, uh, how we get from that very empathetic sort of beginning that we're encouraged to have to some of the things that we do that I think really are quite indecent as a society.
2: Do you think we've underestimated the capabilities of animals so that we can maybe tar ahead with scientific progress and testing to advance medical science? Well,
0: to answer the first question... Yes, I think it's quite clear that we have underestimated the other animals at every possible turn and and in every possible species. But um, I feel that, that the field of animal cognition is moving very fast now and that the things that we're learning are very startling and and that those too come out of scientific research so it's been it's been very much a mixed bag I think I feel I believe I'm hopeful that we're on the cusp of a kind of change in the way we're going to look at animals and the other animals and and treat them and I credit scientific research with Bringing us the information to to do that, you know, in California where I live, the um, Sea World, the the whole issue of the orcas in captivity at SeaWorld is going to be on the ballot soon, and I feel very hopeful that that part of sea world will be closed down. Something I don't think would have been possible without a better understanding, our current better understanding of how intelligent orcas are, what social animals they are. Although you would also think that it would be fairly common sense Mm -hmm. that a creature that roams the ocean is not going to function well in a small enclosed space.
2: And the interesting thing is that fiction is now asking these big questions, probing the reader to challenge their own understanding and their own moral comforts on these big questions.
0: Um, I read, I don't know, about six months ago, I reviewed a book by France de Waal called the, uh bonobo and the primate. Uh, Franz Duval is one of the premier primatologists in the U.S. And one of the many, many interesting things he said is that he feels in the sciences, it's long been understood that we are on a continuum with other animals and not so different as we once believed, but that the arts have been very slow to catch up and that human exceptionalism is still the predominant mode in, in the arts. And so I think what we are seeing, and with climate change as well is a catching up
2: now karen a lot of people know you through the jane austen book club and it was a hugely successful book it was made into a film do you think some of your readers will be surprised that you're looking at these type of questions
0: Possibly if the only thing of mine they've read is the Jane Austen Book Club, they will be surprised. I think if they've read more of my other work, it will be less surprising that probably the Jane Austen Book Club is the outlier mm. more than this book is
2: the outlier. But do you think, though, that in terms of when you have a big success like the Jane Austen Book Club, that maybe publishers thinks that this is what you should only do because you've made such a success of it? Certainly, you know,
0: every writer will be familiar with that issue one way or another, I think. When I first started out, my very first novel was a novel called Sarah Canary, and I had trouble marketing it because it was hard to identify. You know, in a very simple way, it was very hard to figure out exactly where it would go in a bookstore to find the readers who might like it. And my editor, who has been my editor on all my novels, said to me at the time, it won't be a problem by the time you've written six books, it will just be a Karen Joy Fowler novel, and they won't feel the need to pigeon." hole that way so this is my sixth one and it's not clear to me that she was
2: right but we'll see does that create a lot of pressure you're clearly a very strong focused woman who has a lot of courage by the types of books that you write but at the same time there must be an awful lot of pressure because it's a business after all
0: it is a business after all yes and um, certainly everyone involved is hoping to make money after the Jane Austen book club I wrote a book called wit's end it had a different title in the UK it was called the Case of the Imaginary Detective. It did not do well. Mm. People were not happy with me. This book has has done so much better that I think I'm I'm in everyone's good graces again, but the next book will probably disappoint and dismay people again.
2: And what's that like to go through? So you have a big selling book and everyone knows it becomes a film and then the next one just tickers over. Well, of course, it's more pleasant to
0: have a mm. book that's doing well than to have mm. a book that's not doing well. But I think I have been forced in that neither of those was my first book mm. so you know I've mm. got a lot of experience mm. with doing well and not doing mm. well and I understand that that's part of what I signed on for mm. and I am just grateful and fortunate that my editor and my publishing house sticks with me because uh, it, because as you've said it is a business and a lot of editors and a lot mm. of publishing houses wouldn't have done so but they are ever hopeful mm. that I will find the right thing to do again sooner or later.
2: And lastly I'm just interested to know your father was a behavioral psychologist and you probe deeply into the minds of your characters. How much of a psychologist do you have to be to be a good writer and is there a connection in some way? You're developing a character, you're going deeper in the character so how much does one lead into the other by having that temperament or that background?
0: Well, my father, who was, um, as you said, a behavioral psychologist, always used to tell me that Freud had created a magnificent system of literary criticism, but he thought it had very little to do with psychology and with the way um, humans actually operated. But um, whether he's right about the second part of that or not, I think he's certainly right about the first, and that the characters that you create in books tend to be more coherent psychologically and more comprehensible psychologically than probably actual people are
2: but from the reader's perspective we're all jumping out of our heads into another hat. So you're going into a whole new sphere. So it's, a, it's maybe a two-way thing. Well, that to
0: me is the glory of it. And I have an uncle who um, is also a psychologist. In, the, in this case, he's a Jungian psychologist. So I am quite swamped with psychologists in my life. But he wrote me after this book came out. And he's not read any of my others. But he read this one and wanted to talk to me about it a little bit. But he also said that, um, that he hadn't read any of my others because he doesn't read novels, because he doesn't like that. Takeover of his own mind by somebody else's mind, and I thought, Oh, that's the part I like, (laughs) that's the best part.
2: That was Karen Joy Fowler discussing her latest book, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. Okay, coming up next, Irish novelist Hugo Hamilton talks memories and memoirs and why he felt compelled to write every single minute, which is based on a trip he made to Berlin with writer and journalist Nulo Félon shortly before her death in 2008.
0: Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108.
2: And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. If you want to get in contact with the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you, really lovely, and also getting a feel for the books and authors you like to read. Now, believe it or not, it's happy birthday. Blow out the candles time here on Talking Books. It's been a year since our very first show. Yes, hard to believe how fast the time flies. So a big happy birthday from me to you. Anyway, to mark the occasion, the good guys in Books Ireland have generously offered one Talking Books listener an annual subscription to Books Ireland. Now, to win the prize, well, it's not exactly rocket science. We're not absolute head records here on Talking Books. So all you have to do is answer the following question. So here it goes. What is the name of Alan Shatter's novel, first published in 1989 and republished in 2013? and email talking talkingbooks and newstalk.ie. Now, a bit of advice. Considering we like to go a bit arty on talking books and the question is not exactly challenging, well, extra points will be given for answers with a nice bit of creative bite. So off you go. OK, let's move on and meet with one of the Irish writers taking part in this year's West Cork Literary Festival, the softly spoken and gentle Hugo Hamilton, whose two popular memoirs, The Speckled People and The Sailor in the Wardrobe make for incredibly moving reading. I think most households in Ireland have at least one of his books. In 2008, Hugo Hamilton took his friend, the celebrated and much-loved writer and broadcaster, Nülla Fuellon, to Berlin for a few days with a group of friends. Now, the trip was micromanaged by Nülla, who was at that stage wheelchair-bound and on intensive pain-relieving medication. Hugo Hamilton's Every Single Minute is undoubtedly a thought-provoking, tender homage to a cherished friend, as well as a deeply affecting reflection on the nature of pain intimacy and loss the book raises many profound and interesting questions least of all how we process our memories what we're willing to live with and what we cannot let go of on thursday night hugo hamilton and british poet and novelist blake morrison gave a captivating chat on the nature of memory and how writers balance fact and fiction well i shared a coffee with hugo early on friday morning and asked him about his own ideas about memory and letting go
1: Hi, my name is Hugo Hamilton. My latest book is Every Single Minute, a novel which uh, retraces a journey with Nuala O'Fleil on to Berlin. I'm also a memoirist. I've written two memoirs. My first one, Speckled People, became very well known. But my German-Irish childhood in Ireland, German mother from the Rhineland, an Irish father who insisted on the Irish language in the house.
2: Hugo, you said something very interesting last night at your talk. You said that writing memoir and the writing process is a bit like a human laboratory.
1: Mem- memory I think is a a very strange business you know we think we just remember facts the way they are and you know facts have a particular texture and all that but when you begin to examine them particularly looking back at your childhood and your parents and people that you knew everything is constantly changing once you write something down it, it almost becomes a different memory um so that's one of the things I discuss in this new book how how We have to keep catching up with our memory it's it's something that's kind of quite fluid uh, and you have to keep redescribing things all the way through your life you know sometimes you discover something and then you have to keep on discovering it for the rest of your life
2: and sometimes Mm. Hugo memory has a different impact at different stages in our life and what we're experiencing at any given time so an event in your life could wash through you at 20 but at 40 or 50 have a profound impact depending on where you are in your life.
1: Well that's very interesting I mean I think I think when you're young when you're 20 memory doesn't mean a huge amount to you you're you're actually building up memories you're looking for new things in fact most of my time at, at the age of 20 I was trying to ditch my memory I was trying to forget everything in my childhood um only begin to realise what's there. You you can't escape your childhood. You can't expe- escape that memory. So at the age of 40, you begin to think about it. You, you know, particularly if you have children of your own, you, you begin to, well, you have a duty to tell them where you came from. And But it becomes a fascination and then almost an obsession.
2: And where is <coughs> the balance as a writer of memoir with memory and then obsession? Because some people could mm. view it as overly indulgent. Others could see it as nostalgic depending on your own individual story but how do you get that balance as a writer
1: well i think all, all writers are somehow obsessed with memory and details i think i think every human being has a different way of dealing with with memory some people say well that happened and i put it behind me and that's it some people have a wonderful way of you know presenting everything that happened to them in in great funny stories we edit our lives uh, and th- but I think for writers we go back over the same stuff again and again to see if there's more in it to try and understand it I mean there are lots of things that I knew as a child and I'm only figuring them out now Like so 60 years later I finally, it finally clicks I put two and two together about my mother or whatever it is and uh, I have it but it does almost take a lifetime to do it
2: So you think you can refresh your ideas mm. in life refresh your thinking by looking deeper in your memory? in some
1: way. Yeah, some people don't need to do that. I mean, people, people some people are too busy in their lives to kind of go back over all that stuff. And I, I sometimes think if I'd gone to live in the States or Canada when I was 20 I would have had a wonderful life out there whatever I'd be doing and I'd never have to think about Ireland and how I grew up as a German Irish child and uh, all the complications of history and I could have almost left all of that behind but some, some by some accident I always came back to Ireland after my travels and so it did become an obsession. It became well. There was a sort of a deep need to understand what my parents were doing and and how that uh, childhood shaped me so so strongly.
2: But you you have the capacity to put a story onto that experience and shape it in a very interesting w- way for the reader and you can speak out in all your experiences but some people can't they don't have that capacity why do you think that is that some people can open up to their memories and open up to people about their experiences while others <coughs> feel forced in some way to close down
1: well i always say this like that the the loneliest person in the world is the person who can't tell their own story uh, and that's very much true about myself there was in inhibition, there was a silence in my life. I wasn't able to tell that story, so I hid from it. I think, you know, memoir writing and storytelling, there's there's more to it than just sort of spilling out the facts, you know. This idea of just confessing everything that went on in your, in your family, that's not what we want to do. There's a need to craft that in some ways, or to go beyond the facts themselves. It needs to be invented like a story, uh, or reinvented like a story. Or certainly the drama of that childhood has to be presented in some way that's that's more interesting and 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 achieves more and ultimately
2: has a message or provides insight to the reader because we read memoirs Hugo to learn about our humanity to learn about mistakes other people have made and to maybe grow with them on their journey also yeah
1: I I don't know if a memoir writer wants to give a message or or anything like that or it's just an attempt to understand you know complicated people families are complicated institutions and and I think that's what makes them so interesting like that we're like all over the world people are trying to figure out this unit that's kind of forced together into a house and as I say it it takes a long time to understand that but I don't think there's going to be any message in it like you know there's not going to be any warning to future families you know I have a family myself it's very difficult to plan what your children are going to member later it's you know it's it, it you, you can't choreograph their lives and you can't look into the future like that
2: and hugo you have three children and three grandchildren what are the questions they have for you when they read your books
1: um well my, my children i think once they read The Speckled People, it was a relief, I think. They knew there was something sort of very mysterious, very silent, uh, very very strange about their father walking around the house, something I never really told them about. And uh, so the me- the memoir then came out and they could understand, oh, well, that's what was going on all the time. So there is some great value in, in, in telling your story, even in a family circle, because it gives... Uh, Everybody an understanding of what happens. For instance, like I, I had no grandparents ever. I never met them, but I realise now that if I had had them, they would have told me so much about my own parents. I would be able to see the link back in time. So, I mean, l- most children now have grandparents. You know, medical science has made it possible. So, I mean, it's a wonderful impact on them because they can they have a, such a m- such a wide view of the world. They understand their parents because they can see the lines, seeing where every all the peculiarities came from.
2: And what about <coughs> letters, though, in dark? We leave letters, we leave diaries. Today we have emails. So you can shape and put an idea on a person through their correspondences.
1: Yeah, I mean, my mother left a a lot of diaries and and all the incidents of her childhood was all recorded there. Uh, And... That was extraordinary. Like I mean, it's so factual and so true. Um, it was great for me as a, a writer to come across that and to, uh, to be able to use that. I don't think people, you know, keep diaries that much nowadays. But in effect, like the internet and Facebook and all of those things, it's, it's wonderful sources. You can imagine in 20 or 30 years' time, all those things will be really valuable in some ways. You'll be able to go back on all that material and, and see what was fake and see what was true. And, and then you can see how people shaped up, how their lives really panned out. I mean, that's going to be fascinating.
2: Now, Hugo, I know you go over to Berlin quite a bit. Your youngest son is married over there. But you have written about several different trips and one you've made a very interesting book out of. It's your latest book.
1: I've been going to Berlin since 1974. Uh, city has become sort of the second home to. Me. And as you said, my son lives there now. But in, in 2008, there was an extraordinary opportunity, in a way. Myself and nulo Fuelon and a, a number of other people went on this extraordinary trip just before she was dying. Myself and nulo had always talked about Berlin, but then this, this opportunity came up. And it was quite a, an intense, finite journey. But it's also... in in a way, like living a lifetime in two days. All the things she still wanted to do, even though she knew that she was dying, she had this extraordinary energy that she wanted to... She had a list of things made out that she wanted to see. Uh, And so we went through all those. And so the book really is sort of keeping that journey in some fictional way... I mean, all the places we went to, they're, they're all described quite faithfully. But I've turned it into this conversation that we have along the way, sort of an unfinished conversation as much as the one we really had, about how we look at memory. Her, her attitude towards memory was, and her attitude towards family was quite different to mine in some ways. It was much more confrontational. It was based on accusing, you know, wrongdoers, accusing her parents. Mine was much more on sort of trying to understand parents, the mix-up they get into, the confusion that they're in, the kind of, the blind side of them, like they, they can't really see what they're doing. So we always had arguments about that, myself and Nuala, and, and that's what's in the book, basically an, an argument or conversation that we have about the nature of memory and, and remembering your parents. And
2: the book asks us a lot of the reader and asks also a lot of big questions. Do you think we can ever let go of memory? And do you think that we can ever just push forward with our lives?
1: I don't think you can live without memory. I mean, I say that in the book. I mean, the nula character in the book says you can't just leave it behind like an empty field it'll it'll come back to haunt you it'll, your your memory will come after you in a lot of ways i've said that before it'll come after you like your name so it's something that everybody has to deal with and this is still a kind of a frontier in in psychology and human imagination how we deal with memory you know can you kind of just pacify it and and put it behind you as if you know, for instance, my my mother had this great trick. We used to have nightmares at, at home uh, as, as children. My mother would get us up and give us a piece of paper and some crayons, and we'd draw out the nightmare. So there would be this spiky creature we'd draw, and she would say, look, I'll put that in the, in, in in my diary, and it's be safe there. You don't have to dream about it anymore. It was a, a very sort of modern, contemporary kind of thing to do, because that's what we do all the time. We describe something as writers, and it... We describe nightmares. We describe beautiful things. We, we, But we have this need to put it on paper. Otherwise, it gets the better of us. And that's what I... That's my theory really about memory is that unless we deal with it unless we somehow write about it and describe it it then becomes overwhelming
2: so was that particular trip to berlin with nula was that a haunting one for you and when did you actually decide i need to write about this
1: well it was it was a while after the trip that i i thought of writing about it but there was something in in the nature of the journey Mm. that you know nula had this list she had a, a journey, you know, mapped out for herself. It almost kind of wrote itself as a as a novel. Do
2: you think that we have ownership of our experiences? Our experiences, we share them with other people. Our experience today of this interview is two people talking to each other. So we share that experience. So mm. how much do we own that experience?
1: You know, every, everything you do is like mm. your experience. And this trip with Nuala uh, was something that changed me. So I... Claim an entitlement to tell that story i mean it's, it was a transformative story. I think Nula would have been exactly the same if she had gone with me in in this in a reverse situation. she would have come back and told that story mm. so I think it's important for me to tell this story in in and and to remember is something that's 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 quite significant. It's it's you know, there were there were for instance like there was one particular event in Berlin. She she Nula was this opera fan. Uh she went she used to go to the Met in New York and it so happened that Don Carlo was playing at this Staatsoper, uh, uh in Berlin. So she immediately wanted to see it. We got tickets booked for that but then it's when i come home i realize this story of don carlo is about a father killing his own son and it almost reflects exactly what happened in Nula's life the father who failed to put any love into his son and uh, the son comes to an unfortunate death you know so th- there, there are these kind of strange coincidences in the journey like that almost turn it into a novel in it in itself you know
2: but whether there are strange coincidences, as you said earlier, our memory finds us. It haunts us, and it bites us, and it will find us no matter where we are. And sometimes mm-hmm. these strange experiences are running towards us in ways.
1: Yeah, and and the interesting thing about memory and experiences, uh, the strangeness of it is there. You 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 see it when it's when you're going through it. Uh, But sometimes you you can't tell it like that. It's only years later that you you can discover what was actually there. I have so many things in my childhood, for instance, that that were like that. Uh, You know, my my mother at one stage boils a, a cow's tongue. you know quite innocently you know she is a cost-saving measure you know it's it's meat it's whatever but it's only sort of 40 years later that i realize what a bizarre thing for a german woman to do in a household where the english language was suppressed to boil a cow's tongue and we all have to eat it you know that's something that happened and we saw it all and we laughed about it but i never realized the significance of it until much later so in that trip with nula there was A lot of those things as well. So it took me sort of five years Mm. later to kind of understand all of those things.
2: And how have your shared friends, yours and friends, how have they read the book and those that know you both and know your relationship? Because it was quite combustive while you were in Berlin.
1: I'm not sure. I mean, some people have just remained silent about the book. That's fine. Some people absolutely love it. Uh, because it recreates, it mimics Mm. Nuala's voice. Uh, That wasn't very important for me to get that sort of almost childlike voice that she had and this way of pretending that she knew nothing. Um, Who knows? The the jury's out on on the Mm. book in a lot of ways, you know, because uh, I think people sometimes feel that they have ownership of a person, of their work and all that. uh, But I think there's something in this that, you know, needed to be a novel rather than mm. a sort of uh, a memoir. Mm. I think a novel is a much more open quality. It's much more convincing. It's, it's uh, you can get at the truth without sort of getting absolutely bogged down in the facts.
2: Hugo, I'm interested to know that in the writing process, your two characters, Una and Lim, have very different ideas on the past and how they should live and move with the past. And I'm wondering, as you wrote it all down, how has that changed your understanding of memory, because sometimes we learn through difference, and sometimes by somebody challenging our challenging us on our ideas, how different our ideas, our interpretations are. We sometimes grow and learn. So I'm wondering, did that change as you were writing the book?
1: Yeah, myself and Nuala um, had very different. Views about family, about memory, and we used to have arguments about that anytime we appeared on stage together you know eh, all around the world after I'd written the memoir. I would put forward this idea that, that I had a duty to understand my parents to e- even all their flaws. I had to kind of step into their shoes and 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 try and figure that out. nula had a much more confrontational way of of looking at her family uh she didn't tend to want to give them a break in the same way. Uh, And that would immediately open up an argument with us. And I've described all that in the book. One of these arguments we had on stage in Aspen, Colorado, uh, where she just shot me down and then burst into tears in front of a large audience and started berating her mother. Um, And I felt there was always something in Nula that couldn't let go. She couldn't give in. It's... It's the thing that made her into a wonderful crusader and, and a, a fighter for justice and, you know, she could spot fakery and she could spot the truth everywhere. But it also was, was a thing in her nature that, that was unable to let go and that was very much demonstrated by that one particular incident in Berlin where she wouldn't light a candle in a church for her parents. That's where we fundamentally differed and i think the journey to berlin with nuala sort of has has brought that out in me even more and this book is al- almost a way also of you know trying to come to terms with my fears of my father i mean i still in some ways even at 60 i still have fears about my father and uh, i still think he's coming in the door at night and but this book allows me to sort of remember him smiling
2: In case you're wondering what those gorgeous, electric, hypnotic sounds are, well, you're listening to the very talented Icelandic composer Oliver Arnold. I have to say, he's quite something. So spacious and uplifting. I hope it's working for you. OK, well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Next week, we're going to spend some time with Nigerian poet and writer Ben Okri, who entranced audiences with his magic and charm at the West Cork Literary Festival. And we're going to browse through some of the best walking wreaths from around the world. So lots to look forward to there. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan and Kate McDonnell, who helped out in research, and the great Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. Let's enjoy these last few Icelandic grooves with a quote from the artful Oscar Wilde, who once remarked, the one charm of the past is that it is the past.
1: Talking books
0: on New Talk 106 to 108.